In our introduction to this gospel of grace, I noted how one of the most significant differences between this last gospel and that of the synoptics is that while Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the first three, set out to provide kind of a written record of Jesus' life, John, in contrast, writes with a very particular intent. In his conclusion, which is recorded in John chapter 20, verse 30, our author even provides for us the purpose for his narrative. This is what he says. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs and the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Unique to his gospel is that John intends to provoke a decision from the reader. And he does this by presenting a very particular narrative of Jesus' life that's aimed at compelling you to believe or to place your entire faith and confidence in the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior, as well as the Son of God. Honestly, John chapter 6 is a perfect illustration of this reality. Though every single gospel writer records the amazing miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000, and all but Luke documents Jesus' walking on the water that very night on the Sea of Galilee, it is only John, only John, who records the sermon that Jesus gives the next morning in Capernaum. A sermon, by the way, that was specifically designed to accompany the miracle. We call this sermon the bread of life discourse. Now since it's been a few weeks since we've been in John 6, I want to quickly recap for you the flow of the chapter. Following the feeding of the 5,000, we read in John 6 verse 15 that because Jesus perceived that this incredible multitude of people were about to come and take him and make him by force their king, Jesus immediately does three things to kind of diffuse the situation. First, Jesus literally forces the 12, these 12 disciples, who are equally, by the way, excited to make Jesus their king. He forces them into the boat with the command to go to the other side. Then, once the disciples have been removed from this volatile scene, Jesus swiftly acts. He disperses the crowd before departing to a mountain by himself to pray. I'm sure there were a lot of things on Jesus' mind that night. Probably, his disciples were chief among them. I say that because later that night, as Jesus is praying, the story shifts to these 12 men. On the Sea of Galilee, we're told, struggling against this contrary wind that's deterring their progress. For nine hours, if you take all of the gospel narratives into account, these men rode tirelessly only reaching about halfway across the sea before Jesus comes to them walking on the water. It's an amazing scene, an amazing account. Jesus, though, he enters the boat. And in that moment, two things happen. The wind ceases. This contrary wind ceases. And then we're told in John 6, verse 21, that immediately the boat was at the land where they were going, teleported three and a half miles across the sea. 
Well, we pick it up in verse 22, John 6, that on the following day, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, saw that there was no boat there except the one which the disciples had entered, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread after the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they also got into boats and came to Capernaum. Seeking Jesus. And when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? John explains to us that while Jesus had dispersed this large crowd of folks the night before, knowing that they wanted to crown him king, the very next morning, this whole mob, they return to the location. And they see that Jesus isn't there. They they witnessed the disciples being sent away. They noticed Jesus wasn't in the boat. But now Jesus is gone without a trace. So, logically, a search ensues. According to John, at some juncture in this search, word gets back that the boat that had been used by the disciples the night before, while Jesus hadn't been in it, had turned up at a dock in Capernaum. This town, therefore, was kind of a logical place to look. It's where the boat ended up, and it was also Jesus' headquarters for his Galilean ministry. Therefore, they do the logical thing. They get in the boats, and they come to Capernaum seeking Jesus, we're told. Now, in verse 25, we read that they found Jesus, as John often does. It's not very descriptive. And yet, many verses later, in verse 59, John does provide for us a more complete picture of what's actually happening, and specifically where they locate Jesus. Jesus was not just in Capernaum, but again, according to verse 59, Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, because this is the first mention of the synagogue in our travels through the Gospel of John, I want to take just a few minutes to address what the synagogue actually was and the context of the first century Jewish community. First, the synagogue was a building in which the Jewish people would congregate. They would worship. They would read from the scriptures on the Sabbath. The rest of the week, the building would be used as kind of a recreational and educational center for the community. It's where some of the young aspiring intellects would come and be taught. It's interesting to note that the Old Testament never once mentions, nor does it ever commission, the formation or operation of a synagogue. If you do a word study for synagogue, you'll never find it in the first half of your Bible. Most believe that the origins of the synagogue occurred probably during the Babylonian captivity. In the Old Testament, the place of worship was never some other locale, but it was either the tabernacle or later the temple. Now, not only had the temple been destroyed during the Babylonian captivity, Jews been exiled across the empire, but it became wise that in order to maintain in such a dynamic their ethnic heritage as well as their religious heritage, that these small pockets of Jewish communities across the world, they formed a synagogue to be a place of worship or a place of gathering. The term synagogue, you should note, literally means a bringing together. That's what the word means. Or, more sim- simply, a meeting of people. It referred to a unique Jewish gathering, the synagogue. The term synagogue would later evolve 
to describe the actual building or assembly that the Jews gathered in. The, the development of this word is very similar to the general linguistic evolution of the term church, right? We know that the church is what? It's us. It's the body of believers, individually but corporately gathering. But what do we say in the morning? I'm going to church. This is not the church, this building. And yet we refer to it as such because it becomes synonymous with this gathering. Even after the Persians finally allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and Zerubbabel rebuilt the temple, many of the Hebrews that decided to remain in exile, they continued to use the synagogue as their place of worship instead of the temple. It was just easier than always making the journey. In actuality, the Talmud, which is extra-biblical writings, stipulated that if a town, if a town possessed a Jewish community that contained more than 10 Hebrew males, it was required for a synagogue to exist. It's interesting, but when you read through the book of Acts, you'll note that the Apostle Paul mentions visiting synagogues in cities like Damascus, and Salamis, Antioch, Iconium, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, Corinth, even Ephesus. While most every town situated around the Sea of Galilee possessed a local synagogue, we're told in Luke's gospel that this synagogue, the synagogue in Capernaum, was one of the most elaborate in the entire region. Luke tells us that the reason for this is that it had been built by a God-fearing Gentile, a wealthy man, a Roman centurion. Today, archaeological digs have uncovered the original foundation of this very synagogue. The very synagogue that Jesus is in, they've uncovered. It's amazing. And what was discovered about this is that the synagogue, according to the foundation stones, could have held in upwards of 200 people. Quite a large building during this time period. Keep in mind that during Jesus' age... The synagogue, most of the local synagogues, they didn't really have what we would call a pastor or a rabbi, but instead they had a ruler of the synagogue. This was just an individual, and we, we, we come across rulers of the synagogue in the scriptures, but this was just a, a local guy employed to unlock, lock up the building, tend the grounds, prepare the facility, and lead the service. As such, because this individual was not formally educated, the majority of the synagogue service was traditional, ritualistic, even to a large extent automated. When the time came for the scriptures to be read, it was one of the elders, one of the gray hairs, who would stand up and be given the opportunity. And that ritual would only be placated if it just so happened a rabbi happened to be in town. Now, if that was the dynamic, the rabbi would be given the seat of honor and he would be allowed to stand up, choose from the text a passage he wanted to read and then expound upon. The, pay, the case can be made, I, I go through all this, to say that because Capernaum was Jesus' headquarters in Galilee, the location that he spent the most of his time at, it's very likely that as a respected rabbi, even his critics affirm this, Jesus frequented this particular synagogue. As a matter of fact, it was probably normal to go to this particular church and hear Jesus behind the pulpit teaching the people. Something we don't often think about when we think of Jesus. 
Now, obviously, this initial question. So they catch wind. Jesus might be in Capernaum. They board boats. They head. They find him in the synagogue. They come in. There's Jesus. The the initial question, right? Rabbi, when did you come here? That's kind of relevant, right? I mean, that's a relevant question, all things considered. I'm sure that the disciples, I mean, the disciples are probably chomping at the bit to answer that question, right? Because, man, did they have a tale to tell, right? You'll never believe, how did he get here? Well, we were rowing. He didn't even need a boat. He was walking across the sea. I'm sure they were pumped up, excited to record all the events. Man, we had this contrary wind, but not only was Jesus walking across the sea, and Peter's like, yeah, I got out. I walked on the water. It was just for a minute, but I was walking, and then I was sinking. I'm sure they were like, and as soon as he got in the boat, man, the wind ceased, and we were like teleported. It was the craziest experience. Interesting, though, the disciples don't speak, and Jesus never even answers their question. Instead, Jesus now uses the opportunity to teach a sermon illustrated by his feeding of the 5,000. Now, before we examine this sermon, which is going to take us two Sundays to get through, I want to begin by having you just kind of imagine the scene. Here you had this majestic local synagogue built right on the Sea of Galilee. The windows are open, the breeze is blowing in, it's cool. The place is likely packed to capacity. Jesus is behind the pulpit. That day, the vibe was lit. The audience inflated. Aside from the local crowd that probably called the synagogue home. And the 12 disciples who are undoubtedly a bit tired from being up all night. According to Matthew 15, You also have, as Jesus gives this sermon, a delegation of scribes, lawyers, and Pharisees, the religious right, who were sent from Jerusalem to interrogate Jesus, sitting in the front row. I'm excited that we don't have any of them here this morning. No one sits on the front row at Calvary 316. It's because I spit. Whatever. These men... They're skeptical of Jesus. They're not believers. As a matter of fact, they're really looking for any legal way that they could have Jesus arrested or or at at a minimum, diffuse his ministry, minimize his standing and his growing popularity. (laughs) Jesus, by the end of this sermon, will do it for them. In contrast to the group of skeptics, we also know that the crowd had swelled with a group of people who what? who had just experienced one of the most radical miracles recorded in your Bible. Filled with men and women who had been miraculously fed by Jesus the day before, and a group who we know wanted to make him their king that moment. These people are so convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, they've navigated the seven-mile journey across the sea that morning just to be in attendance. The crowd hushes, no doubt, as Jesus begins his sermon. Now, because we're going to take two weeks, I want to do something a little different. I want to read the sermon in its entirety before we start working our way through it, because this is Jesus preaching. So imagine you're in the synagogue, even if you need to close your eyes, not for too long, you might not open them, but I want you to imagine being there and hearing Jesus utter utter these words. 
Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Well, they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. Therefore they said to him, What sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And so Jesus, he said to them most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to Jesus, Lord, give us this bread always. But Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given, he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up the last day. Then the Jews complained about Jesus because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it that he says, I have come down from heaven? So Jesus therefore answered <coughs> and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which came down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And the Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. And then people lose their minds. <laughs> Let's go back to verse 26 and work our way. Jesus begins, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Jesus begins his sermon here by diagnosing a problem, a serious problem, within the audience. The act of seeking Jesus, you know, that was to be commended, right? I mean, Jesus, in another sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, will even declare, Seek, and ye shall find. But he begins here by undressing their true motivations. Jesus says, You seek me, not because you saw the sign, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Admittedly, Greek to English can be very frustrating, and this is a great illustration of this reality. In this statement, Jesus is telling the crowd that their core problem was the fact that they were seeking him. Why? Well, he answers, because they ate of the loaves and were filled, and not because they saw the sign. In a sense, Jesus is telling them right up front that there was a right and a wrong way to seek him. Sadly, they were guilty of the latter. It would appear that the issue wasn't that the multitude failed to see the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. Most of them were, were there. They were in attendance. They saw it. Instead, the problem centered on a failure to understand the purpose behind the miracle itself. This is what Jesus means when he rebukes them for not seeing the sign. The word saw, it implies perception not just physical sight, to see through it, to see into it. Instead of seeking after Jesus because they recognized the deeper spiritual lesson he was illustrating by blessing and breaking the loaves and feeding the multitudes, this crowd had pursued Jesus across the Sea of Galilee to Capernaum for no other reason than they had eaten of the loaves and had their bellies filled. You see, the fundamental problem here, what Jesus is diagnosing, the intentions he's undressing, is that this group of people, they were seeking after Jesus, hoping that Jesus would address their physical needs. Here they were, seeking from Jesus a better life in the here and now. Some in this crowd wanted Jesus to be a political leader wanted Jesus to lead a revolution, free them from Roman occupation. Others wanted Jesus to be a social justice warrior and institute a more equitable society. Everyone present that day had eaten of the loaves and were filled because they had been hungry. Now before we rag on this crowd too much, please keep in mind that we are all guilty of the same approach to a large extent. After the world, and I don't know your particular story, but I'm sure it's similar to mine, that after the world chewed you up and spit you out, you eventually came to Jesus. Why? Why? If you're honest, like this multitude, you are desperate for a better life. Desperate. You wanted Jesus to take care of your physical needs and make everything immediately better. If you were broke, you came to Jesus hoping that he would make you wealthy or at least get you out of debt. 
If you were sick, you came to Jesus hoping to be healed. If you were lonely, you came desperate for a wife or at least some friends. If you were unemployed, how about a job? If you were oppressed, you came hoping Jesus would right those wrongs. If you think about it, this reality explains the marketing strategy of many of today's churches. And yet, here's the problem with this perspective. And don't miss this. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to take care of your physical or material or emotional or practical needs. Please know Jesus does. In Matthew 6, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said, Therefore I say to you, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, about your body, what you'll put on. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, Jesus says. They neither sow nor reap, gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Jesus wants to take care of your practical needs. Don't mistake me, but, there's a big but here, and this is Jesus' pressing point. Seeking Jesus for those specific concerns, if that's the motivation, it tragically robs you of the fundamental reason you should be seeking him in the first place. Like this is Jesus' entire point in his, in his opening. This crowd of people were seeking Jesus because they wanted Jesus to address needs X, Y, and Z. But his point is you should be seeking me because you have needs A, B, and C I would really like to deal with. I mean, honestly, who cares if Jesus helps you gain the whole world, but you never seek him as your savior and you lose your soul in the process? Now, it's with all this in mind that Jesus continues, verse 27. Do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Following his diagnosis of their core problem, the fact that they were seeking him to address the wrong needs in that moment, Jesus continues by issuing a stark command followed by a particular admonishment. And he does this by presenting an interesting contrast using the phrase, do not labor, and this repeating line, for the food, as kind of his pivot point. Now before we get to the contrast itself and the fundamental point Jesus is hammering home, let me define kind of a few terms that will help in your understanding of what Jesus is articulating. First, it should be pointed out that the Greek structure of this sentence should read, do not labor for the food which perishes, but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. That, that's a, a more accurate understanding in the Greek structure. Now what's fascinating to me is that this word labor, it simply describes the act of acquiring something. It's in this context, in light of Jesus' statement, that the idea of labor here should not be perceived as a negative. Like, think of labor as seeking. The word itself is translated when Jesus says, uh, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Where he talks about, you know, where neither moth nor rust destroy. The word rust is the same word being used here. Secondly, this phrase, the food. It's also kind of fascinating. In the King James Version of this verse, 
First, I, I like the original Greek word. Um, I don't know how to pronounce much in the Greek. I don't know how to pronounce much in the English, yet alone the Greek. But I love this word. In the Greek, the word is brosis. Brosis. I don't know. I just, I just I feel like I can resonate with that. And the King James Version, this is how it's translated. The meat. We have the meat. The word here, it describes for us the act of eating or consuming something such as food and not so much the object of that consumption. So it's not so much what's being consumed, but just the act of consuming itself. Now, based upon these definitions, we see that Jesus is contrasting here, what? Two things that you pursue to consume. And with that in mind, what's the contrast? You can either pursue the food, which perishes, or you can pursue the food, which endures to everlasting life. Now, as it pertains to the food, which perishes, we can extrapolate that, that it's consuming something that has an expiration date, that's temporal, that will in the end find itself in ruin, which should be no surprise that Jesus commands you not to seek after such things. Don't seek, don't pursue the food which perishes. Don't seek to consume that which is temporary. And then in contrast, what he says, but seek or labor for the food which endures to everlasting life. This is something that you seek to consume that knows no end, that's eternal, that's never ending, that endures or remains for all time. While one pursuit perishes, the other endures to everlasting life. And because such a thing is logically unattainable on this earth, Jesus adds that this food, the Son of Man will give you. And you can trust that because he's been sealed by the Father. In this pursuit, you seek from Jesus a gift. It's something he gives. It originates solely in him. Now keep in mind, that Jesus is not saying to us that the pursuit in and of itself is wrong. He isn't saying, do not labor, but to instead consider what it is you're laboring for. Don't forget, the word laboring is not intrinsically wrong. You see, the reality is that this human experience that we all share, one yielded, created, driven by sin, has left every human being wanting to some degree. Every person who's alive or has ever lived senses within themselves an intrinsic incompleteness. Every person recognizes a lack of real satisfaction. It's as the great philosopher Mick Jagger so aptly sang, I can't get no satisfaction. And I can try and try and try. Years before Jesus addressed this audience in Capernaum, King Solomon established as the opening thesis for another grand sermon, a sermon that's recorded and presented to us as the book of Ecclesiastes. This is how he opened. He says, vanity of vanities, says the, pe the, the preacher. All is vanity. And then he says, I, the preacher, was king over Israel. 
and Jerusalem. And I set my heart to seek and search out by wisdom concerning all that's done under the heavens. This burdens of task God has given to the sons of men, so we all share it, by which they may be exercised. Then Solomon says, I've seen all the works done under the sun, and indeed all is vanity and grasping for the wind. Understand, in his opening to the bread of life discourse, Jesus is, is in many ways replying to Solomon's premise. And he's doing this by exhorting all of us to seek after something that transcends the temporal and our momentary needs, works done under the sun, and to instead seek after that which is enduring. Seek after, pursue, pursue something that will last, that has life, that's enduring. It's as though Jesus is telling this crowd, why are you coming to me to address these needs? Which, yeah, they matter to you in the moment, but they don't matter in the long run. Why don't you come to me knowing I've been sent from God because I can give you something that will address matters of eternal consequence? It's as though Jesus is like, you're coming to me because you want me to get you out of debt, get your bank account back to balance? Why are you coming to me for that when I can save your soul from a debt you'll never be able to satisfy? Get your needs in priority. Again, he's saying this in the context of physical wants. Uh, you're here because I fed your belly. But he is encouraging you and I and everyone in that synagogue that day to seek from him a remedy to an eternal need that this world can never suffice and can only be provided by the Son of God, sealed by the Father, giving you something. You see, friend, he's offering everlasting life in place of a food which perishes. Well, they said to him, verse 28, what shall we do that we may work the works of God? And Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. As mentioned in the Greek construct, Jesus just exhorted this crowd to labor for or to seek after the food which endures to everlasting life. And yet, this very notion of the food being given to them is something that would be foreign. The idea of such a grand thing being given and not being earned was weird. It's why their immediate reaction is what? What shall we do? Again, while it's clear the audience understood some of what Jesus is articulating, it's equally obvious that their religious framework, a works-based religion, had become an impediment to a complete enlightenment. It's as though they're like, okay, Jesus, we get what you're saying, we think. It sounds awesome. Pretty amazing. So what do we now need to do? Can you tell us what we need to do so that this work of God can happen in our lives? And then look at Jesus' answer. Believe. Believe in him whom God sent. You, you want to know what things you have to do for God to give you this food which endures to everlasting life, that satisfies a need in your life this world can never? It's simple. Believe in me. Now please realize, this word believe, it's so much more 
than an intellectual agreement. Instead, the word believe, it, it describes a total trust, the act of complete reliance, a full clinging to. Think of belief this way. True belief only exists in the dynamic that should the object of that belief fail, your entire life subsequently falls apart and is hardly worth living. That is the complete nature of such a belief. Believe in me. It, let me translate this statement the way it would have resonated to Jesus' audience. You want to know what you need to do to receive everlasting life? Like how you can be eternally satisfied? How that deep hunger <coughs> you've never been able to fill can be remedied? First, stop pursuing the things the world offers, the things which perish. But secondly, forget about your religious works. Forget about laws to obey and traditions, the traditions of your fathers. Instead, if you want this amazing thing, throw your weight so completely upon me that should I fail to follow through, your life would be revealed to be a total and complete sham. That's what he's saying. Verse 30, therefore they said to Jesus, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Now in light of this understanding as to what it really means to believe in Jesus, you can see why they'd make such a request. Jesus, if, if you really want us to do what you're saying, then man, you kind of have to sweeten the pot, right? Give us a sign, perform a miracle, do something to make such an act on our part more reasonable. And what's more, they're even audacious enough to give Jesus a suggestion. Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the desert, as it is written. And they quote from Psalms 105, verse 40, he, or Moses, gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, in an attempt to get Jesus to do something to justify their belief, <laughs> keep in mind the irony, Jesus has just miraculously taken five loaves of barley and fed a multitude. They point back to the supernatural feeding of God's people in the wilderness during the Exodus when Moses called down manna from heaven as an example for what they're looking for Jesus to do. You want this type of belief in you, Jesus? Okay, do something like Moses. Now, in line with this, and we've mentioned this in our last study in John, this was a traditional messianic expectation. Not biblical, but the rabbis taught that an indicator that this person was the Messiah is that they would call down manna from heaven, just like their hero Moses. Well, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And trying to get his audience to expand their perspective, Jesus corrects two misconceptions, right? First, Moses didn't give you bread. It was my Father in heaven. Moses was nothing more than a participant. He wasn't the catalyst. Second, and, and you know, I don't know if you feel this, but you can sense it in the kind of the written tone. But Jesus is kind of over the whole bread thing. Kind of pick that up. It's like, you guys are keep coming back to bread. Give us this bread. We want that bread. 
Who cares about bread? It's kind of what Jesus is saying here. He's saying the true bread isn't bread. It's me. That's what he's saying. God sent me from heaven to give life to the world. Again, they kind of miss it. They're like, well, give us this bread, which is why Jesus then is like, I am the bread of life. Now, next Sunday, we're going to pick up this statement. I am the bread of life. We're going to dig into its implications, what Jesus is really saying by it. But I do want to close just this morning by returning to a fundamental question. What are you seeking? What are you seeking Jesus for? Honestly, I think this question is just as relevant for the Christian as it is the seeker. And your answer to that question is equally revealing. Now, there are, there are a lot of ways that I could illustrate the larger point I want to make this morning. But God actually took care of it for me. A little pull back the curtain. I was at this very point in my Bible study. I was at a point where I was like, man, I, I would really enjoy a cigar. I ordered some. They haven't gotten here yet. They're in my mailbox. So I go down the street. Literally pause right here. Thinking of an illustration. And in my mailbox, God gave me an illustration. It wasn't the cigars. It was this. Middle of my sermon prep, I have an invite to a local church to attend a four-part series on marriage. Now, on the flyer, this is what the pastor writes. The pastor writes, Hollywood sure makes marriage seem simple. You meet the perfect person, fall in love, say, I do, and then live happily ever after. But we all know the truth. Marriage isn't that simple. A strong marriage takes a tremendous amount of work, selflessness, communication, and grace. Please join us on Sunday, September 9th, as we begin a four-part message series, Married Life, and learn how to love each other for a lifetime, end quote. Sounds pretty nice, right? But please know why this church is marketing this series to the community. Every marriage struggles. Like, it's kind of universal. Like, they can kind of hit everyone. Oh, people down the street, they're married? Yeah, they're struggling. Like, it's, it's kind of a perfect branding. They can market to all marriages, because all marriages struggle, and get you to come to church for help. My, my point. A mailer saying something to the effect of, hey, neighbor, you're totally screwed up, and apart from Jesus, you're going to hell. It doesn't market test quite as well. The attraction here is to come to Jesus. Why? To seek Jesus. Why? So he can fix your marriage. Sadly, because of the very nature of the marketing strategy and the fact that Jesus is never mentioned once on this brochure, my guess is this series will end up centering on answering the logical question anyone who comes to Jesus for the wrong reason will ultimately ask. What shall we do? It's in our text. And I hope I'm wrong. 
But it's likely that these four studies will be nothing more than a whole bunch of practical steps, works, you do to learn how to love your spouse. Now, don't get me wrong. If your marriage is struggling, Jesus is very interested in being part of the remedy, but in a much different way than they're advertising. You see, the focus shouldn't be coming to church so that you can learn to, quote, learn how to love each other for a lifetime, but instead coming to Jesus so he can fill your heart with an eternal love for your spouse that will last a lifetime because it's found in him and not you. If I were rewriting this ad to be maybe a little more gospel-centric, this is how it would read. Hollywood sure makes marriage seem simple. You meet the perfect person, fall in love, say I do, and then live happily ever after. But we all know the truth. Marriage isn't that simple. A strong marriage requires two people die to themselves and constantly rely on Jesus. Join us Sunday, September 9th, as we begin a four-part message series, Married Life, where we discuss how your only hope for marital success is Jesus and the reciprocal nature of his grace manifesting through you to your spouse. Friend, let me repeat. It's not that Jesus doesn't want to work in the practical areas of your life. He absolutely does. It's just that that work naturally flows from the much larger work Jesus died to accomplish. Like This is why the attractional church model, seeker-friendly church, it's why it's so flawed. The whole model intentionally appeals to your lesser needs as opposed to being bold enough to call out your true problem. You're a sinner destined for hell apart from Jesus. If you and your spouse are struggling, the remedy isn't four weeks of things I recommend you do. But instead, it's a savior I exhort you to return to. The only way my wife, Jessica, can love me for a lifetime is for that love to originate and flow from the cross where she first experienced his love for her. Apart from that, I stand no chance. Amen? Amen. Apart from that, friend, quote, no amount of hard work, selflessness, and communication will ever suffice. So again, I ask, in the context of wherever you are or whatever it is you're presently facing, are you seeking Jesus? And if you are, why are you seeking him? Friend, there is a significant difference between, fi between seeking Jesus to fix your problems as opposed to seeking Jesus to transform who you are. And when he transforms who you are, guess what is fixed? A lot of your problems. May I close with repeating Jesus' exhortation. Do not labor for the food which perishes but labor for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will, it's a promise, will give you. So Father, Lord, we want to let that just kind of marinate, settle into our hearts.